Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Great Voices in Opera and Song with Chris Gaffney. And you've been listening to Great Voices for the last two hours with our friend, Mr... What's his name? Uh, Gaffney. Gaffney. <laughs> Chris Gaffney, of course it is. Now it's time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. And today... Victory at last, Oceana Gold pays up, but there's more to come. I'll be speaking with Kevin Bracken, who was one of those who organised um, the demo every fourth Friday of the month outside Oceana Gold's headquarters in the city, 12 o'clock in the city, 357 Collins Street. But we'll be back again this Friday because they haven't got rid of them yet. Not quite. Organic farming. I'll be speaking to organic farmer from East Gippsland, Alan Broughton, who's worked both here in Australia, taught, written books, and been visiting countries, many countries around the world, looking to see how they are managing their organic farming. Victories at the recent Moreland City Council meeting. I'll be speaking with Sue Bolton. She's one of the Moreland City Council councillor and she's also a member of Socialist Alliance and there was a couple of main issues. Well, the main issues were civil liberties and the treatment of homelessness. A move by the Bougainville Interim Government to reopen the Panguna Mine in Bougainville and allow Bougainville Copper Limited to come back after the dreadful mess they made there and the death of 20,000 people in the, the war to keep the mine closed. Well, it wasn't really to keep the mine closed. It was the, the PNG government with support from Australia who caused most of those deaths, 20,000 people on Bougainville. So you can imagine why the people don't want the mine back and they don't want Rio Tinto, who is the, now the main owner. They don't want them back either. But first, let's hear it from or for Mr Kevin Healy and see what sort of a week he's had. A week, Jane, listener, when some myopic souls might think Trubler was his desire to get into the space race, spend trillions when governments tell us we must slash spending on the basics taxes are raised for if we wish to protect the greatest little economic order of them all, is a waste, a wasteful, unnecessary ambition. Well... The week that was is here to say it's one of the smartest, most brilliant, far-sighted plans we've heard in eons. What better long-term value than finding another planet out there somewhere we can inhabit, given the terminal diagnosis facing the one we've got? Just hope if there's life there they know how to treat climate refugees, although we could just declare the new planet Terra Nullius and tell them they don't exist. 
Meanwhile, still on planet Earth, the sundry Tuvaluasi governments got together to discuss its destruction, armed with the recommendations of the National Climate Change's Crap Commission, chaired by former Big Supremo Tiny a bit more for the bosses, supported by the invaluable inputs of Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Supremo Barnacle, Corey St. Bernardi, George Christian Man and a Woman Family Son, Erica Betts on the bosses, and like-minded, community-minded, altruistic decision-makers who determine climate change, crap and energy policy on our behalf. While the Minister for Fossils, Josh Fry Dem Icebergs, complained when asked whether the government would adopt a clean energy target, the only recommendation of the Finn Kill the Planet report not adopted. We've only had the report for a month or two. We, we can't rush into these decisions without proper consideration. But, but, but you adopted the other recommendations day one without proper consideration by Tiny's Climate Change's Crap Commission, which determines our progressive energy policy, and I believe they are very close to recommending coal, good, clean coal, as the clean energy solution. So, bring on the space race. More so as that in-depth so-called think tank, the Institute of Public Very Private Affairs, has claimed more than half the caring business class party MPs do not believe in climate change, still argue the science is not settled. Well, a mere 99.99 recurring percent of climate scientists, if not 100%, believe the science is settled, so scepticism, agnosticism, denial make scientific sense supported by the little bald-headed bloke who used to be Big Supremo back in those dark ages, addressing the US of the UN of the US of the World Study Centre last week, presumably for his usual very, very substantial fee, direct quote, I have become uh, increasingly more of a sceptic on uh, climate change. I, I was never a uh, paid-up enthusiast. <laughs> Gee, we'd never noticed that. But given his starting point, we're stunned to hear there's space for the increasingly more of a sceptic bit. On space, Tiny's uh, former boss, Peter with an A, in Credibility, whose regular Lord Rupert of Wapping columns never stopped praising the man who tossed Tiny and her out, Big Supremo Malcolm, says climate change remains Malcolm's kryptonite, bringing us back to another planet. Sensibly, Peter's solution is leaving the climate, energy and related matters like the end of planet Earth to the market, which will sort it all out. Better to lose the planet than to hurt the economy, given that lot also don't believe in a non-fossil economy. That solution to all problems, the market. Ironic, isn't it? The one market we do enjoy at the top of Elizabeth Street, the same forces want to destroy in the name of progress. High-rise towers, cranes on the skyline, excavators reaching into the abyss for underground caverns, development for the not-so-common good. Not good. Bad, very bad. These fake news attacks on poor US of big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, Donald's eponymous son, 
nothing if not all modesty, the old Donald, faced a probing interview on Lord Rupert's objective medium, Fox Tell Him What Lord Rupert Wants Him to Think, to respond to these fake news stories that talking to a Russian lawyer hoping to get the dirt on his dad's opponent was somehow talking to a Russian lawyer hoping to get the dirt on his dad's opponent, explaining that when he said he hadn't spoken to a Russian, he really and truly believed he hadn't spoken to a Russian. And then when he said he may have spoken to a Russian whom he didn't know was a Russian, he really and truly believed he may have spoken to a Russian whom he didn't know was a Russian. And then when these emails between the eponymous son and a go-between and a Russian lawyer surfaced, he underwent a miraculous recovery of memory. And anyway, the Russian lawyer had no dirt to give him. Bitch! And Donald, Big Donald, said his son... Well, first, let's make it clear. Big Donald had no idea any of this was going on. No idea, no idea. Big Donald said his son was honourable, and the whole issue was the biggest witch hunt ever, ever in the history of the human race. Presumably dwarfing the Inquisition, for instance, and were Arthur Miller alive, he could pen a new play about a real witch hunt, the real crucible. And Big Donald said his honourable offspring had answered every question put to him by Lord Rupert's probing inquisitor, if such friendly puff could qualify as questions. Because Lord Rupert and his lackeys always want only the truth and nothing but the truth. So I think we can safely say that matter's been laid to rest. Don't expect we'll hear much more of that. Well, well, there is a congressional hearing, but what can they ask him that Lord Rupert's loyal like he didn't ask, other than real questions? But there's no question about Donald's popularity, as boasted by the ever-modest Donald himself, with this latest poll showing the lowest favourable and the highest not favourable of any US of Big Supremo at this stage of the Supremo cycle. Very good. Very good. I am the best Big Supremo ever at everything. Everything. I'm the best worst, and I'm the worst best. Good. Very, very good. No need for satire, really, as the polls show Donald's popularity plumbing, plummeting towards zero, or zilch, or zip, or whatever our US of friends mangle, Donald said the figure was not bad, <laughs> leaving us to ponder just what Donald might consider not so good. And the no-proper-papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people have been whooping it up and popping the corks on Manus and Nauru at this exciting news. True Blue looks certain to get on the UN of the US of the UN of the World Human Rights Committee, showing how effective that little body is. Well, Liberty, Freedom and Democracy, Love and Saudi chaired the Human Rights Committee. Not sure if it still does or not, but what better proof do we need to confirm its credibility on human rights? Credibility, as Peter with an A credibility, and that lot who knows science is not settled on climate change crap, equally know the Human Rights Committee's impeccable record on human rights is settled. And anyway, the whooping it up illegal boat people will enjoy human rights in the US of or simply die, whichever comes first. On community-minded altruism, top marks to the Minerals Profits Council for showing it cares about nothing but the public purse. The super-efficient, lean, mean, private companies, as usual, expressing concern for the bloated, inefficient hand of the public sector.
Get rid of crippling state royalties on the publicly owned products the industry extracts from Mother Earth and the states would get a lot more in GST revenue. No royalties on mining companies and the states would be better off. Isn't it reassuring to know there's an industry out there which puts our interests first? And to protect all that, a heavily armed trained killer and a heavily armed trained killer trained, sorry, a police person on every corner. And if that isn't reassuring enough, they'll be under the orders of that giant mind, Peter Duffer. Bring on that new planet. And yes, we started with the exciting news we're investing in finding a new planet to replace the one we've stuffed up. But the end of the planet is nothing compared to the real cause of the end of the world as we know it. Moves to amalgamate the evil construction union, the lawless CFMEU, and the evil lawless maritime union, and the clothing and textiles union which attempts to interfere in the win-win relationship between respectable labels and the women who like to do a little bit of work at home, say 22 or 23 hours a day, to bring in an even littler bit of extra money. Bloody interfering union where it has no right to interfere. Win-win caring employer outworker relationships. No less a responsible body than the True Blue Aussie Mines and Metals Profits Association has warned of the pending doom. If these evil bodies do amalgamate, it will, direct quote, no embellishment, give the militant CFMEU and MUA greater capacity to inflict economic damage. There is no doubt that the stability of the supply chain from pit to port is at risk. Can anyone imagine a greater threat to humanity than risking the supply chain from pit to port? Finally, Tiny's National Climate Change's CrapCon mission and climate change crap itself pale against such a threat. If pale not be an oxymoron in the circumstances, good afternoon. And thank you once again to Mr Kevin Healy for his week that was, and as I say, most weeks. If you don't get enough of Kevin on a Tuesday, there's always Wednesday morning. And you can hear Kevin from 9 until 10, pouring his cup of tea first and then looking at issues, not just local, but he does go a little bit further than that. That's tomorrow morning between 9 and 10 on Melbourne Community Radio 3CR, 8.55am, 3CR Digital, streaming on 3cr.org.au, podcast later. I'm not sure whether it's podcast or not, but have a look. 3cr.org.au Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. They have finally paid. I'm referring to Canadian-Australian mining company Oceana Gold paying what the Exid Tribunal 
the World Bank's arbitration arm, the International Centre for Settlement of Investment Disputes, awarded the Government of El Salvador as part of its legal costs in fighting and winning over a $250 million claim on the country for refusing to give a mining permit on environmental grounds. Kevin Bracken has been prominent in the campaign here in Melbourne as one of 250 organisations from across five continents demanding Oceania Gold not only pay up but ship out entirely from El Salvador. Kevin, it's been a long and hard campaign which unfortunately is not over yet but a great result nonetheless for the people of El Salvador. Just briefly, what has been paid altogether and what does that amount equate to? The um, ex-head tribunal ruled that Oceana Gold had to pay the $8 million. Their 150 days expired, I think, the week last week and they paid it right on the knocker. Unfortunately, we weren't there to, to find out last Friday that they had actually paid it. They paid that and they also had to pay $97,000 interest as well for not paying it on time. It was another ruling the Exhead Tribunal had made as well. It's a good outcome, but it's not. it still leaves a massive debt to El Salvador. They cost them $14 million to run the case, so they haven't paid back the, the cost to the country. And also there's the uh, deaths of the activists who have been murdered and the ongoing grief that they've all had to, to go through as well. And the most disappointing part for the people of El Salvador too is that the company still operates there under companies of another name. Uh, there's Torregos Mineralis, and Torregos is like the national bird of El Salvador, so it's put in there to make a sound. And they've still got the land which they had. When they, they hadn't paid the debt, El Salvadorian government seized the land as part of their assets. They've since released, since the money's been paid, they've released it back. And Torregos Mineralis operates there. And so there's a, another company, Fundacion El Dorado. Now, they're saying that these companies are there to, for sustainable agriculture, you know, and to help people, la, la, la. But, you know, they're totally owned by the mining company, Oceana Gold, which is purely a mining company. It's not an agricultural company. And um, they believe that all they're there for is to, um, they want to stay there, to sow this bit of disunity within the um, community. And there's an election next March that they want, don't want to see that they're in there you know, throwing money around to candidates who will overturn the mining law because that's the other great outcome that they had out of it. It's the first country into, in the world to introduce a law banning the exploration and production of, of minerals. Let's go back on a few of those issues there. The court case in the beginning, it started nine years ago. Why did it take nine years to reach a resolution? Well, first of all, it was um, thrown out because it was, they tried to sue them under CAFTA. Central American Free Trade Agreement, but because there was no entity in the USA, they weren't successful. So what they did, Pacific Rim Cayman Islands opened up a, a, a branch in Nevada, and under that they could use that legislation to sue El Salvador through the Exed Tribunal. So that commenced, as you said, nine years ago. It dragged on, and um, at the end of it, they and they announced the on this is an auspicious day too. I think it was the fourteenth of October. 2016, which was the 60th anniversary of the Exit Tribunal. And maybe it was put on that day to say that, oh, we don't always rule in the corporation's favour, which is a lot of crap. But, yeah, it was a ruling put down. But it's, it's still 
represents a net loss to El Salvador. And the reason why they, they lost the case was they didn't own all the land where they wanted to mine and they hadn't done a, a proper um, environmental effects statement on it. So that was the reason for it. But it was originally taken out by Pacific Rim. Pacific Rim was bought out by Oceana Gold totally in uh, September 2013. And the only asset, tangible asset they had was that case against El Salvador in the, in the Exit Tribunal. And they reckon they were going to make a killing. They were going to sue El Salvador for $300 million, which is one of the poorest countries on earth, which is, and it represents about half their education budget for the year. So it's a massive, and I find it obscene that a company, you know, based here in Collins Street in Melbourne, will be suing one of the poorest countries on earth. And the reason why they didn't give them the mining permit was because they destroyed their fresh water, you know. And it's one of the most water-starved countries in Central America. Only 2% of the water is drinkable now anyway. And it's not as if they've got a tap where they can turn it on like we're fortunate enough to we're in Australia. They use the streams, you know, to wash the clothes, to cook the food, you know, to drink it as well. Just talk about ITSID for a moment. What have they got to do with it? And who are they? Well, the ITSID tribunal is, based, is a tribunal based in the World Bank. And a part of it was done was because I think Mexico nationalised the oil companies in maybe the 1930s, and so the ICSID tribunal is to say that this is to stop companies from, um, you know, it's to protect companies' investments in other countries. So, and it's all about, you know, corporations overriding the rule of a democratic country, as it's been used time and time again, you know, and probably the worst case is that one against um, Ecuador. I think they paid, it was, they sued... Um, Chevron, was it? Chevron, yeah. Was Occidental with Chevron the same same company? One point six billion dollars. They weren't successful in one point six billion dollars, but I think Ecuador agreed to pay nine hundred and seventy million dollars to them as compensation. So, and unfortunately, countries around the world are signing onto these ISDS legislation as part of free trade agreements. You know, but it's, it's actually over. What it does, it hands over the um, final say on what you can do in your country to a foreign tribunal, and it has a freezing effect on other countries too. And one of the big issues too at the time, when I went over there in um, 2013, uh, just over the border in Guatemala, there's another big mine, a Cerro Blanco mine. Six people had been shot who had been protesting it. But the government was too scared to ban the mine because they were afraid they were going to be sued in the exit tri- in an exit tribunal too, the same as El Salvador, which was for $300 million. And it's not very often that corporations lose these cases either. So they're not in um, anyone's interest. They're against actually... And what it does, it turns the whole idea that the, the um, resources of a country belong to the people who live there, you know, that the resources of the country are there for the benefit of corporations to milk it for all it's worth. So are you saying that if Oceana Gold had owned all that land, that the, uh, the government of El Salvador would have got nothing? Not only have they got nothing, That's if they had done a proper environmental effects statement and owned the land, yes, they would have probably had to pay $300 million compensation to them. What about the people who died over those years? Well, it's, a, it's an ongoing debt too, and, and it's one that uh, people have wanted cooperation from the corporations about it. And they're all connected, connected with the um, environmental movement in El Salvador and all, all spoken about the mine. So, yeah, Marcelo Rivera, he was the first one, he was a school teacher, went missing and was found, his body was found two, day, two weeks later, being horribly tortured, and um, his body was found down at the bottom of a mine. Romero Rivera was shot. We were shot in, in um, August and then f- shot again on the 20th of um, 20th of December later on that year uh, by people opened up with with M16s. 
and the woman who was in the car next to him, in the truck next to him, who was also murdered too then. And there must have been a lot of fearful people as well, yet you might be the next one. That's right, and there's also a lot of death threats too against Radio Victoria, which is a community radio station over in Cabanos. A lot of the producers had death threats on there. There was damage to the aerial um, and the um, transmission equipment. It was made all at the same time as these death threats were. So one of the interesting things is that the man who was in charge, who was a vice president, I believe, of, of Pacific Rim at the time, was later found dismembering a municipal employee in San Isidro. He got 10 years jail over it. Now, apparently, he's never been questioned over the murder. And, and what happened, he was released after after 12 months. He happened to be a um, son of a, the external affairs minister, a previous external affairs minister for El Salvador. And uh, there was such a public outrage, they had to put him back in jail over it, you know. But he'd never been questioned. And I believe that um, Marcelo Rivero's brother has made a statement saying he believes that the people who murdered his brother are in jail, but they were paid to do that murder. And they weren't convicted of his murder. They were in jail for other, other murders that they'd, they'd convicted. So what it does, unfortunately, too, when you divide it up in very poor countries, people will do you know, inhuman things to their fellow men for money. As you said, you went there in 2013. Talk about the community you met there at that time. Yeah, we stayed um, in Santa Marta in, at um, Adez. It was an association for the development of El Salvador, and it's a community-based organisation. At the time, after the, um, the Civil War had finished, there wasn't much education there, and what they've done is developed the education system very much here. So it's probably got a, it might be a, a good opportunity you know, if there was some um, investment in their, in education, that would be another uh, thing would really benefit the community over there too. But we met Vitalina Morales over there, and Vitalina actually came back to Australia in um, September and October of um, 2013. And she's a great community worker. And she's also very disappointed too that um, Torregos Morales is still there in the area, and it's only just so in disharmony within the community too. And that's what they do, they play people off against each other. Exactly right. And as I said, that that, that corporation is totally owned by Oceana Gold and Oceana Gold is purely a mining company, so there's no reason why it should be still there, except you know, they play people for suckers and it's about saying oh we're doing lots of good things for the community but all they're doing is actually trying to stay there for the next election and get their own people elected there, as, if, as mining companies do in lots and lots of countries. Well, when you think what it's cost the, the people of El Salvador, there's the, the loss of the, the activists, there's the, the people frightened, there's, they spent $24 million on their legal costs, they only got $8 million back. That means that the resources of the country, a very poor country, have gone into, all, into that legal case for over the, all those years. All the, the, the bureaucrats or whatever have t- had to concentrate on that rather than look after their own people. That's right, and as I've said time and time again, a very poor country got much better things to do with their money than spend it on legal cases in, you know, in a tribunal in the World Bank. Just talk a couple four minutes about those two organisations that they've still got there and what they've been doing over the years. I think um, Pacific Rim put some money aside for community work, you know, education, and it said all great things, you know, you know, educating women and. And things. But that's the job of the government anyway. That's right, and, and they could do that much better. On the one hand, they're, they're giving them, I think they gave them something like $10,000. On the other hand, they were suing the government for $300 million. And $10,000 to a small community is a lot of money. It's a lot of money, that's for sure. But, but not to Oceania Gold. Yes, and that's why 
and that's what makes you sick, you know, when you think, of, you know, what would they do, crack out the Bollinger Champagne, you know, when they've sued one of the poorest countries on earth and denied them a, a chance of, of uh, fresh water, you know, which is necessary for life. And that was a theme through it over there, you know. You can live without gold, but you can't live without water. What else have they spent their money on there? It's Torragos Minerales too, and Torragos is the national bird of El Salvador, so it's made to sound a wonderful organisation. But they're the two organisations in the hands there, and I believe that's what it is. Now, what has happened since is that they've heard second-hand that, um, that the um, Attorney General El Salvador has done a, an agreement to let them stay there under those conditions. And then what the community said to them, you, if you've made any decisions about that area, you need to come back and tell us what you have agreed to, whether you have agreed or you haven't, because they, they were under the understanding that the, the, um, they wanted the money paid, but they also wanted the company out of the country. Is this an FMLN government at the moment? It's a um, FLMN president, but they, they don't ha- no longer have the majority in parliament. So they have a split time when the people are elected and then when the president's elected too. And there is an election in March next year. And as you said, that legislation could be overturned. It could be overturned. The interesting thing about the legislation was is it was voted through unanimously. There's 84 people in, the, in their parliament... 69 voted for it and yet no one voted against it. And that was the first time in the world? First time in the world that any country's ever banned the um, exploration and you know, production of mining. It doesn't affect the people who do small, small scale mining? I don't believe mining. that small R2, small scale Antigua mining would be affected by it, but it's corporate mining. What's happened is the legislation has been passed, but the regulation still needs to be enacted and there's a group who's forming to um, form the regulation which will enforce that legislation. Talk about the worldwide campaign against Oceania Gold. So, yeah, there's been a, um, well, ongoing campaign. There's been a groups in Washington, in the USA, in um, Canada, Toronto, where their other headquarters, they've got headquarters in Melbourne and Toronto. They had the AGM in, in Toronto last week. They never mentioned a case in El Salvador or anything about El Salvador. They never mentioned also that they had their mind suspended in, um, in the Philippines either. But there was someone from Mining Watch Canada who asked those questions to Mike Wilkes, who's the CEO of um, Oceana Gold. So he wasn't too happy that it had been asked. But the shareholders need to know you know, all the things that are going on. He did, yeah. So he he gave them a a bit of a brush off there. But it's good that there was people in the... They had people in there. uh, They bought a share of of Oceana Gold so they could attend the the, um, AGM. And also they had people outside the um, AGM as well. And when did you start the rallies outside the headquarters here in Melbourne? They've been going, I think, since September 2013. So it's pretty, pretty since good. Since you came back? Yes, yeah, since we came back. And, and Vinaro, I think Villaluna Morales is one of the first, one of the first meetings we had there, speaking out the front. And did any of your, your group get to go up to the whatever floor and actually speak to Mr. Wilkes? Mr. Wilkes, we'd spoken to him once when he came down there. Well, I wasn't there at the time, but it was just before I'd got there at one of the rallies. We've also been up there a number of times to hand them some um, investigations that have gone on from people from universities that have gone to El Salvador, but unfortunately there was never anyone there. We did meet with the, a woman who's done, doing the communications, whose name, whose name just escapes me at the moment, who said that, you know, well, it's all about development and we're not going to do an open-cut mine, which they were going to do, and it's all about you know, how they're going to recycle 80% of the water. But if you have a look at it, I think it's a normal a normal mine will go through something like a gold mine, 28,000 
gallons a day, which is enough to keep a family sustained for 20 years. So even if you recycle 80% of the water, it's still more, a lot more water than what they've actually got to, to use there. Also, when you've got gold mining, there's chemicals and there's poisons released and used in that process. That's right, and they use um, cyanide to release the gold from the from the ore, and also from the rocks, and also um, arsenic's released. Wherever you find gold, you also find arsenic in the ground, and so that gets released too. And some of the streams over there are like a thousand times the, the um, safe limit now, just through previous mining activity. And because it's also a volcanic area, is that that that's, that those rocks are um, sulfuric, and so when they are released with water, it becomes acidic. And people have, over the years, suffered from skin diseases, have they, from the, the water? Because yeah, they've suffered from, um, yeah, lung it? diseases, kidney diseases, mainly. And that was due to the heavy metals contamination in the water supply there. And is that also coming from the mines in Guatemala, down into El Salvador? That's right, because, uh, thanks for reminding me, but the, yeah, the Cerro Banco, Banco mine is part of the watershed that goes into El Salvador too. So it's also what the um, this group who's doing the regulation is investigating is what they're going to what the relationship want what that'll mean to the Cerro Blanco mine and other mines too, and also part of it is going to be those ongoing investigations into the people who were murdered in El Salvador over the over the time. What's going to happen on the last Friday of this month? Last Friday of this month, we, we're going to go back there and we're going to say that the people of El Salvador have asked us only. Ten minutes before I um, spoke to, or we started this interview, Jan, as I spoke to um, Sean Cleary, who'd been in contact with the people over there, and they said they were greatly appreciative for all the people over here in Australia who are holding Oceana Gold to, to uh, account for their actions over there, and they would greatly appreciate the support you know, for the remaining claim now is for the company to leave the country. And there's also the support for the people in the Philippines who are also battling Oceana Gold. That's right, and then mining under Dipio. And getting back to um, the mine that was under suspension by the um, Gina Lopez, who was the um, Natural Resources Minister and Environment. What they did, they had a massive campaign against her over there, and when she was going to be sworn in, she wasn't sworn in, and she was actually removed from her office. And so those those bands which were those mines which were suspended, which was Oceana Gold, have been overturned. And it just goes to show you how these mining companies from the first world interfere in the in the democratic process within these countries. And there's been massive disruption to the people in the Philippines as well, and deaths and poison in the rivers, everything. That's right. The same thing that happened over in El Salvador has happened over there. People who protested have been murdered. People have been forcibly removed from their homes without compensation. That mine operates 24 hours a day, and what it's doing is poisoning the water supply downstream. And the fact that these mining companies wouldn't get away with those practices if they were mining in the first world country. That's right. They wouldn't get away with them in, if they were operating in, in Australia. For a start, it's one thing, and it's, you know, we can protest over here, and we need to make sure it's all about lots of things can be manipulated, but there's one thing is that international solidarity is a wonderful thing. And you might think it might only be a small thing, you know, put an hour in once a month, but it's, it's a significant thing when it's done constantly and under pressure and for the right reason. And you just give it the address? 357 Collins Street in Melbourne and it'll be the last Friday of the month, 12 o'clock. Thank thanks you. very much, Jan, and thanks very much for your support too. And thanks also for the uh, members, a lot of our retired members who um, have been protesting there all the time and some have died over the last four years too. And the people who have been there, I'd like to thank our, our retired members 
for all their constant support in this in this um, social solidarity. You've had Father Bob there, and yeah, we've had Father Bob and Bishop Elton Deacon. They've been here too. <laughs> we've got God on our side. Thanks, Jean. And that's Kevin Bracken. He certainly <clears throat> certainly has got God on his side. If you'd like to join Kevin and the crew outside Oceana Gold Friday week, I'm sure they'll be most happy for you to come. It's at 357 Collins Street in the city. It starts at 12. It's only, it goes for probably less than an hour. But the more the merrier to just put that pressure on Oceana Gold to get right out of El Salvador and leave the people to have their water and their their livelihoods and their land for themselves rather than have to put up with a multinational mining company, which, as I said in that interview, they couldn't get away with the things that they do in third world countries, countries of the south, if they were doing it here in Australia. So that's Friday week, 357 Collins Street in the city, 12 o'clock to join Kevin and his crew to get rid of Oceania Gold out of El Salvador. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say, it's okay, you are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. Tune in, dig deep and clean up by purchasing some fantastic discounted gardening books from 3CR's online garden store. We have books on water-wise gardening, organic vegetables, roses, climbers and creepers and even clematis. It's easy. Just go to our website, 3cr.org.au and follow the links on the front page. Don't have internet access? Call the station during business hours between 9 and 5 and we'll post out a catalogue in the mail. All proceeds help keep Melbourne's favourite gardening show on air for another year. Tune in 7.30am every Sunday morning. There is a crisis in agriculture worldwide as the impact of industrial agriculture continues to dominate as populations increase and demand for food grows. But there are many farmers all over the world using sustainable farming methods to protect biodiversity and ensure the health of the soil, which is seen as the real key to feeding the world. One such farmer is Alan Broughton from East Gippsland in Victoria. Alan has worked and studied in many countries, as well as designing and teaching the first organic farming diploma in Australia. I spoke with Alan recently. Alan, where and when did your interest and involvement in sustainable agriculture begin? I was at Monash University from 1969 to 71, which was an era of great 
change and, and foment in the university. Monash was a u- new university. I think it was only about 80 years old at that time. So it started off as something radical and innovative. And it was at the time of the Vietnam War, so there was lots and lots of things going on. I got interested in the environment movement at that stage too. I read Rachel Carson's book Silent Spring, and that had quite a big effect on me. Wherever I lived in Melbourne, I was from the countryside and I came from a farm, but I always loved gardening, and I always had a backyard garden and grew my own vegetables. I always did it without any chemicals. I was adverse to chemicals, I suppose. I didn't know much about them at that time and about their use. And, of course, I didn't have any money being a a student. And then I got a job with Melbourne City Council in the nursery in the Fitzroy Gardens. And it was at that time, 1978, I think it was, when Bill Mollison's Permaculture One was produced. And uh, that was a just as something so fascinating for me and the other young people working at the nursery at that time. And we used to listen to the program on 3CR every week and discuss it. And it was just, you know, just a wonderful thing. And then eventually I got to be able to buy some land and, and set up an organic orchard. I came across, at that time it was called the East Gippsland Organic Agriculture Association, which had just been formed the year before we moved to Bensdale. And so I've been an active member of that ever since. Things have just gone on and on since then. I did a graduate diploma in sustainable agriculture. I've largely taught myself a lot, really. There's always some event on that's worth going to, international speakers coming, field days, that sort of thing. There's a lot of different terms, aren't there? There's sustainable agriculture, there's agroecology, there's organic farming, there's biodynamic farming. Can you nut those ones out? Well, they're all different terms and different streams of the alternative agriculture movement. Biodynamics is a are more specialised things because you're using particular preparations to to boost the soil biology. A lot of the other terms are fairly interchangeable. Governments all believe in sustainability now, so they've co-opted that term and destroyed it, basically. You call anything sustainable and just keep on doing what you were doing anyway. Uh, so it's become a pretense and pretty meaningless they're actually starting to use the term agroecology for that sort of purpose too, with the aim of diffusing it and destroying it. Agroecology is a political movement. It's not just a farming movement. And I suppose those who are making money out of other people's farming activities, they want to destroy those terms and make them meaningless or co-opt them. But yeah, there's many other terms, regenerative agriculture. There's there's quite a lot of different ones. I've never ever used chemicals, except sometimes when when I worked at the Melbourne City Council nursery, yeah, we had to, and some of them were the most horrible things, like parathion, which is not used anymore, one of the deadliest substances ever invented, and all the workers there used to absolutely hate using that because we had to dress up in thick raincoats and and all that, and but you still never get the smell out of you. If you've got the smell in you, then you're absorbing it. 
So in my own gardening, no, never use pesticides and no need. Pesticides actually create pest problems. Just like herbicides create weed problems, fungicides create fungal problems and so on. And so if you're not using any of those and you've got good biodiversity, then pests are not much of a problem at all. What you're up against, though, is in industrial agriculture now and it's multinationals moving around around the world. How and when did they get off the ground? It's been a gradual process of increasing concentration. The pesticide era really only started after the Second World War. There were some pesticides used before then, and some of them were pretty nasty things like lead arsenate. But DDT was used during the war to control lice on soldiers. And the organophosphate pesticides were used as nerve gases. And so after the war finished, all those um, factories that were producing those were put into creating pesticides. And that was where the pesticide era really started. And DDT was one of the first of them. It was the first to show the major problems. And it was also the first where it became obvious that insects could overcome these pesticides. And so generally it was within five years that DDT stopped being effective on particular insects and so a new chemical would be developed and then that would become obsolete and more new ones were developed. So we're sort of running out of options now. The latest lot is the neonicotinoids, which are among worst at all because of the destruction they do to bees and they should be totally banned. They're being restricted in Europe, and but there's no restriction on them here. There is a campaign here, though, to get rid of them, isn't there? Yes, there is, yes. And hopefully it'll, it'll be effective. Because of public campaigning that DDT, Dieldrin, Lindane, Parathion, all those, uh, Endosulfan, all those were eventually banned. And the same will happen with glyphosate. And then we have companies like Monsanto and Agent Orange. That's right, yes. Agent Orange is a a combination of of two herbicides, 2,4-D and 2,4-5-T. They were first used in the the Malayan War in the 1950s. The British used them for defoliation in order to remove habitat for gorillas. Gorillas, not gorillas. And and then that was used extensively in Vietnam too. 2,4-5-T is not used anymore. That's been restricted. 2,4-D is still used. One of the major problems with with both of those is the high dioxin content. And now, 50 years after the Vietnam War ended, children are still born with deformities because the dioxin is still there in the environment. And it's also, it's being passed on through the generations too. It's not just picking it up through food. It seems to be inherited as well. There's millions and millions of deformed people in Vietnam largely because of that, uh, those herbicides that were used. Yeah, and Monsanto was the, the big creator of them. Monsanto is now, well, it's about to amalgamated with bio agrochemicals and that will be the biggest pesticide and seed company in the world and they have massive massive influence over governments and over government regulations they have just such phenomenal power they are on the board of organizations like the alliance for a green revolution in africa which is 
extensively to increase food production in Africa to relieve hunger, but basically it's to penetrate the last place on earth where Monsanto doesn't have full sway. And there really isn't a, a food problem, is there? Is a, it's a food distribution problem and it's a poverty problem. That's right, yes. It's a total myth that the hunger in the world is caused by lack of food production. The world produces enough food now to feed a population of 2050. So there's really no connection between food production and hunger. The issue is justice. The people's ability to grow their own food or the ability to buy the food if they live in urban areas. Talk about the downsides of industrial agriculture, what it's, what it's meant for soil, what it's meant for biodiversity, all those sorts of things. Well, well, let's start with soil. Soil is a living thing. It is full of just multitudes and multitudes of biological activity of all different kinds of microbes, the fungi, the bacteria, the nematodes, the protozoa. And there's also the, the bigger things like the earthworms and the ground beetles and that sort of thing. All pesticides and all chemical fertilisers have some effect on them. Some groups might be stimulated, others are suppressed, but it upsets whatever balance there was there. Some of the functional groups particularly the mycorrhizal fungi that attach themselves to plant roots, they're the most easily affected and they are the creators of humus. So uh, what industrial agriculture is doing is depleting the carbon in the soil. So that's contributing to greenhouse gases. It's also preventing the soil from functioning properly so that it only functions when it's got big inputs of chemical fertilisers which create pesticide problems so you need to have the pesticides to go with it. So soil destruction is uh, a major factor in industrial agriculture. Others are the, uh, the impact on livestock. The industrial livestock systems are pretty horrendous for the animals themselves and when animals are in close confinement then they are subjected to all different kinds of diseases so routine use of antibiotics is is part of that and then there's the environmental effects too the contamination of water supplies the contamination of uh, just the environment in, in general industrial agriculture is a monocultural system which means you don't want anything else growing there so you've got this these massive areas of the the one product it might be wheat, it might be rice it might be maize and so there's no biodiversity there lack of biodiversity creates a pest problem and also there's there's no habitat for for nature basically because in nature monoculture doesn't exist biodiversity is the norm in nature and so many poorer or small farmers being forced off their land and into the outskirts of cities all around the world. That's right, yes. Now this process has been going on in the industrialised countries for a long period. I suppose the major start of that was uh, the Industrial Revolution in Britain when the factories wanted large numbers of, of workers 
and so industrial agriculture started to some extent then and to drive people off the land. Now this process is continuing not just in the industrialised countries but in the other countries too and a land is being alienated for other purposes. There's been massive taking over of land in Africa and Southeast Asia by large companies from different parts of the world and it's for different purposes. The Arab countries like Saudi Arabia, the Gulf states, also China and to some extent India, they want to secure their food supplies for the future. So they are getting leasehold or freehold on vast amounts of land, particularly Africa, in order to produce food for export to those countries. But there's also land alienation for biofuel plantations and also for, for reforestation for carbon credits. Now, the governments in those countries want to do this because they want foreign exchange. If a country's got foreign exchange, then they can import the luxury goods, the Mercedes-Benz cars and that sort of thing that the elite need. But the people who are living on that land, they have to go. And often they don't have a title to that land, so it's easy to get rid of them. For instance, in Western Tanzania, there's a US energy company has acquired half a million hectares of land. The Tanzanian government says, um, well, it wasn't being used. It was only, it only had um, Burundian refugees on it. They don't matter. They were going to get kicked off, even though they've been there for several generations and were well set up. But yeah, they don't count uh, because they, they didn't have rights on that land. And the, the government says, this will be wonderful for food security for Tanzania. But it's an energy company. It's not going to be producing food for Tanzania. Tanzania produces plenty of food. It's just total rubbish. But governments are taken in by this and they could be benefiting sideways at the same time. And another detriment is the fact that these small farmers, doesn't matter what country in the world, they have no control over the price of the products that they're producing. That's right. Yet most other producers of anything in the world do have some influence on prices, but Farmers are price takers. They really don't have much choice. And that means it is very easy to exploit them. It's not just in third world countries. Farmers in the industrialised countries are highly exploited too. As the large agribusiness corporations become more and more concentrated, they have greater and greater power. And free trade has work to increase the competition between farmers, not just within countries but between countries, but it's reduced the competition between the the corporations. And so the exploitation is intensifying all around the world. What can farmers do? Well, forming cooperatives can help or just banding together and refusing to accept particular prices. Selling directly to consumers is another way because farmers' markets do set their own prices. You are listening to Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. My name is Jan Bartlett and I'm speaking with East Gippsland organic farmer Alan Broughton. Well, we see what happens here, don't we, with the milk over the last few years? Yes, yes, that's right. That's, um, it's partly because of this, this $1 milk that, that means that... Um, the milk factories 
they have to reduce their costs, which means they have to reduce what they pay the farmers because the supermarkets are demanding that they supply the milk at this low price. But also because of globalisation, there's more intensive competition between countries and so milk producers are faced with world export prices and that does help determine the price that farmers get here too. It's not like in the old days where you could sell your milk directly or or just separate it and sell the cream. It just doesn't happen anymore. And also the continual push for genetic engineering. Yes, genetic engineering, it's a lot of myth associated with that. You know, the corporations say, well, we can solve the world's food security problems with genetic modification. Well, they haven't got very far so far after, after many years, have they? Well, no, 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 because overwhelmingly the genetically engineered crops that are grown are engineered to resist herbicides and so there has been a great increase in uh, in pesticide use because of that. Fortunately in Australia we've only got two GM crops that are allowed, uh, cotton and canola. Tasmania and South Australia still have a ban on GM crops. We need to intensify activities I think to prevent new ones being developed because there's, there's lots of work still going on in order to produce new crops uh, like um, herbicide-resistant wheat, for example. It's public action, really, that has prevented more crops being uh, allowed in Australia now. You have visited many countries around the world and, and had a look at how they are doing their organic farming or sustainable yes. farming. Can we talk about some of the, the, the places you talked Briefly, there about Tanzania. Yes, you were yes. there recently. That's right. I've just just came back from Africa. My son-in-law is is Tanzanian, and his family are subsistence farmers in a semi-arid area in central Tanzania. This year, it's been pretty bad for them because of of drought, which people are blaming on global warming. You know, they have had droughts before, but this seems to be. Worse and droughts are becoming more common. So basically, in central Tanzania, the maize crop failed. Other crops weren't so bad. The, the sorghums and the millets are much better adapted to drought conditions because they are native to East Africa anyway. But people prefer maize. I think people will have to adjust. But anyway, the main feature about agriculture in Tanzania and Uganda, where I've spent some time too, is that they don't do monoculture at all. All crops are grown together. For instance, my son-in-law's father, when he's growing maize, he's got sunflower plants mixed in them. He's got cucumbers growing on the ground underneath the plants. There's beans growing scattered through it and okra and sorghum plants in amongst the maize. And when I went to Uganda, I was in an area where the rainfall is quite good, reliable, and where they can grow um, rainfall-dependent crops like uh, like coffee and bananas. There, you never see a patch of coffee by itself. It's always got bananas as the overstory, providing the shade, and then it's got an understory of cassava or maize or taro or something. So there's multi-multi-stories of plantings, and that as well as greatly 
increasing the production per hectare, it prevents a lot of pest and disease problems because you've got far greater biodiversity. Other parts of, of Africa, especially further south, they have really gone into the, the monocropping. So you see a, a paddock of, of maize and nothing else in it. But the, the successful farmers really are the ones that have caught that big biodiversity and they don't have a need for chemicals. What have you seen in Asia? The most impressive was I spent a week on an organic rice producing farm near the Cambodian border. Organic rice is not all that hard to produce. There are various rice pests, but people plant flowers, just ordinary flowers like cosmos, plant that around the edges of the rice field. That provides habitat for particular insects, which control the um, rice sleephopper, for example. They run ducks in the rice field, and the ducks eat the snails. Yes, there's a lot of different things people can do. They will grow um, various other crops around the, the rice fields. And in the dry season, this particular farm I went to, they were growing a crop uh, called sun hemp. It's a nitrogen-fixing plant. It doesn't need much water, so you can grow it in the dry season without irrigation. There's actually a massive market for that seed, particularly in the United States, because the plant is a nematode controller. And so the, um, the sugarcane growers in Texas are using sun hemp in rotation with the sugarcane in order to control nematodes. Farmers in part of, uh, of Thailand are getting that extra crop, the sun, the sun hemp seeds. They're also increasing their soil fertility and it's been of tremendous benefit for them. And I went to another farm, rice farm in Thailand where this man, he's a permaculture practitioner. He has converted some of his rice fields into ponds and he produces fish in those ponds. He's got the the water from the ponds to irrigate other crops during the dry season. So he's greatly increased his productivity and his income doing that. And farmers around used to say, why are you destroying good rice growing land? And he just shows them the income he produces from the fish and the income he gets from his dry season crop that he can now irrigate. They stunned. They can, they can see there's just such a, a massive improvement. And in that part of Thailand, you can get a pond done for free because urban development wants soil to fill in rice fields for housing and factories and things. So the land developers say, yeah, give us the soil and we'll dig your pond for free. So it's a win for, for both of them. Just some of those things you've been talking about there, it sounds like used to be in China many, many years ago. Still a very, a very strong organic movement in China because so much of the land is heavily polluted the soils are polluted both by industrial chemicals and air pollution and also from some agricultural chemicals there is a big demand especially among um, urban people for clean organic food I think there's three to four million hectares of land in China is now under organic production in China people have become intensely aware of the harm that industrialisation has done to them. Mao used to be of the opinion that smoke coming out of a factory was positive. It was a sign of 
industrial development. But now people know they can't breathe in, in cities like Beijing and Guangzhou. And the, you look up in the sky and you think it's all overcast and then you see this orange ball up there and there's no cloud at all. It's just pollution and it is intensive and the rivers are polluted. So, yes, there's a very, very strong movement now to uh, improve their environment. Also in Latin America, I'm thinking about Cuba, where they had the special period where they had to really do something. You know, they didn't have oil coming in from the Soviet Union and they didn't have the the chemicals, they couldn't afford them. And they moved more into permaculture, organics. That's right, yes. And they have maintained that. So most of Cuban agriculture is is fully organic. It's something. It's, it's over ninety percent. I'm not sure what the current figure is. They developed that system through need because they could they could no longer bring in the the chemicals or the high amounts of fuel that they were needed for the industrial farming system that they developed. They changed to to urban agriculture too. So urban communities use every little bit of spare land in order to produce food. Havana, which has got a similar population to Melbourne, but in a much smaller area, produces more than 50% of its own fruit and vegetables. That's not to say that they're free of problems in Cuba, because there's heaps of land available, but it's very hard to get people to move out of the urban areas and to take up this land, which they don't have to purchase, they can have free use of it as long as they're using it for a productive purpose. The land's there, it's just that, um, yeah, it's, it's just hard to change attitudes of people who've lived in urban areas for a few generations. Uh, they're very used to the urban life and they've got this image of, um, of rural life as being um, very hard, uh, which is not really the case. Similar situation in Venezuela? Venezuela is quite different. There is urban agriculture going on there, and it's done by community groups. It has been with some Cuban assistance too. But because Venezuela never went through a revolution, a lot of the land is still held by very, very wealthy landowners, massive, massive amounts of land. There was some land distribution. A lot of that land was turned into co-ops, but under Venezuelan law, if these large estates are actually producing food, then the land really can't be appropriated. So it's where the, the land is idle or not being used to its productive capacity, then communities do have the right to take that land. Where that's been done, the land has been managed as a cooperative. Some are smallish, like might only have 10 families. Others might have 150 families involved in it. But yeah, agriculture still is largely controlled by, by big landowners in Venezuela. It's government policy that all agriculture be agroecology, but um, it just hasn't worked. Venezuela is in turmoil at the moment and it's it's rather difficult to get government policies implemented. Have you been to Italy or other European countries at all to see how they're getting on? Yes, I think it was 2008. I went to the International Federation of Organic Agriculture Movements 
conference, which was in a town in northern Italy called Modena. And as part of that, I went on a, a tour of organic farms in that district. Organic farming is, is quite big in Europe. In that part of Italy, something like 10 to 15% of farms were certified organic. This is in the Emilia-Romagna region. And with strong support by local government, regional government and national government. One of the most impressive places I went to was a pig farm. And this pig farm, they didn't run a lot of pigs, but they managed to have a good income by slaughtering one pig per week. They would allow the pigs to grow big, like 250 kilos, and then on that farm they would produce the salami and the hams and all of that and sell directly. They grew their own wheat, barley, peas, so all of the food for the pigs was produced on the farm too. So that was a very good integrated production system which was providing a good income from one pig per week. It's in, I think, Austria and Switzerland have got the highest amount of certified organic land as a percentage of farmland in the world, and it's, it's 15 to 20%. Well, in 2017, how are we going here in Australia? In Australia, we have absolutely no government support for organic farming. Virtually every other country in the world has some support. Even in the United States, there is some federal government support and lots of state governments give support in providing research, providing incentives for organic farming. But here we have absolutely nothing. But in Australia, the organic farming movement or regenerative farming movement, biological farming movement, it's always been fully independent of government and that can be of benefit because when there's assistance from government, then there's some control too. Well, we had an organic farming movement back in the 1940s in Australia, before the pesticide era really began, which was a reaction to the effects of superphosphate and nitrate fertilisers. And since the 1970s, that's been steadily growing at about 10% per year. Now there's quite a lot of farmers who don't want to call themselves organic and they're not interested in organic certification but they call themselves biological and they have rejected chemical use. They say superphosphate doesn't work anymore. Nitrate fertilisers create pests. They destroy the soil. And so they have gone to uh, new production systems which mean they don't need those high inputs. It also increases their income because they, they, they're not outlaying you know, one farmer out in the Mallee, a wheat grower, told me he spends $100,000 per year on herbicides. Now, <laughs> if you can avoid doing that, you're getting well ahead. Even if you're not getting any price premium, you, by reducing your costs, you're becoming much more sustainable. Are you encouraged the way things are going? Yes, yes. Oh, yes. The chemical era is only a temporary era. It will pass, if only because... It ceases to be effective. Herbicides, pesticides, the options for developing new ones have virtually run out and resistance by weeds and by insects has meant that a lot of them just do not work anymore. The departments of agriculture tell farmers you must use different herbicides every time you use herbicides in order to delay the development of resistance. 
but it's, it's not the answer, it's just putting things off a little bit more. Phosphate reserves in the world are running out and it could only be 10 years where superphosphate is unaffordable. Nitrate fertilisers are produced from gas. If we have another gas and oil crisis, the price will go up and uh, that will be unaffordable too. Besides, there's just more and more evidence coming out all of the time of the harm that nitrate fertilisers are doing to the soil and also to the atmosphere because nitrous oxide is largely a product of nitrate fertiliser use and that is a far, far more powerful greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. So there could be severe restrictions if we had a genuine government interested in uh, global warming. There could be big restrictions on the use of nitrate fertilisers and people will have to develop ecological systems. It's really the only way for the future. So it's inevitable. And that's organic farmer Alan Broughton speaking to me about his work, about his life and about his passion for a life without chemicals in our farming. It's nearly 12 minutes past five o'clock on Melbourne's community radio station 3CR. Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. This is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great, really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. If you're looking to spend a couple of hours in the evening, local council meetings might not be the most stimulating place to be, but last Wednesday at the meeting of the Moreland City Council, it certainly was just that. The following Friday, last Friday, I spoke with one of the councillors, Sue Bolton, who was also involved with Socialist Alliance. Sue, it began with a protest outside the venue with participants representing a wide range of interests and concerns. Quite a wide range of community groups were there and then we got also apologies from people who were away on school holidays. So we had Steve Roach, who's an organiser for the CFMU and former Moreland councillor. We had Toxic Free Faulkner. We had Moreland Community Against the East West Tunnel, now renamed Moreland Community Action on Transport. We had people from Save Coburg. We had people from Climate Action Moreland people from Brunswick Residence Network and Social Alliance and Solidarity and Australian Unemployed Workers Union, Duncan Storer, some people might know, came all the way from Geelong. Uh, he was the person who, on Q&A a year or two ago, took on one of the Liberal Party government ministers over the treatment of people on the dole. 
So it was sort of like quite widely supported. There were a number of people with lived experience of homelessness and also there was someone from the No Homeless Ban campaign. So it wasn't just homelessness that brought all these people together, was it? It was a combination of attacks on homeless people and attacks on free speech. And what was up for the council that was going to affect these people? Council has been reviewing its uh, local laws over the last few months and council put forward a proposal to the councillors to vote on which included a whole raft of undemocratic and anti-homeless laws. Now, a substantial number of these already existed on the books, but just because just because they exist on the books doesn't mean that they should stay on the books. As long as undemocratic laws are on the books, they can always be used against against people. So amongst the undemocratic laws, and quite a lot of councils would have these on their books, was a ban on handing out or displaying leaflets without a permit, a ban on protests without a permit, a ban on soliciting for money without a permit, a ban on street stalls, i.e. that is having a card table or an A-frame for a street stall under the, under the innocuous heading of furniture in a public place. There was a ban on camping, which existed under the previous local law, but it was elaborated on in this law to include camping in vehicles, etc. There were also some elements about not leaving goods in a public, unattended in a public place, so clearly targeted at homeless people and also a ban on busking without a permit, a ban on street art without a permit in a public place. So there's a raft of things. I mean, then there are some other things which I think have the potential to be enacted in a discriminatory way, such as a ban on public drinking in the municipality. And I think um, some of those sorts of things uh, can be implemented in a very discriminatory kind of way. So because of the public campaign, there was a lot of pressure on the councillors, which I think was very good because I think that had some impact on the councillors, in particular people contacting council to say that some of these anti-democratic laws breached the Human Rights Charter in Victoria, Victoria is the only state with a human rights charter. And so we had some victories at the council meeting. So the victories were the deletion of the ban on protests, the deletion of the ban on handbills, and the deletion of the ban on soliciting. Unfortunately, the ban on furniture in a public place, that is community stalls, still stands. And the penalty for breaching that, the penalty for having a store without a permit is $500. The cost of a permit is $300. But even so, how long does it take to get a permit? Are permits automatically granted or is there some vetting of groups that do stalls? I just don't believe there should be any kind of permits for this sort of activity. Um, I think it's over-regulation of people's behaviour and ability to engage with other other people uh, in a public place at the same time as corporations have 
very little regulation on them for doing very harmful things to people, including workers. The camping ban has been amended and is sort of a bit unclear and I think it should have just been scrubbed altogether. The argument of some of the councillors was that people were coming and tourists were coming and camping in the Coburg Lakes Reserve and taking up all the car parking spots and causing hassle for nearby residents. You know, and I know there was a big issue in the local papers about that with views, different different sorts of views echoed about that. But I personally feel that as soon as you try and work out uh, a system of allowing homeless people to camp but not allowing tourists to camp, there are all sorts of grey areas. For example, if someone's backpacking around Australia, they arrive in Melbourne flat broke, their boss hasn't paid their wage into their bank account or Centrelink hasn't paid their money yet into their bank account and so they're stranded without housing or without shelter for a few nights. Are they considered homeless or tourists? Some people might be kicked out of home, like young persons, for example, who might intend to go back and might be able to go back after a couple of days, so they might not consider themselves homeless. Would all council staff consider that person homeless if they, say, if they don't say they're homeless? So I feel that... Anything where people have to explain themselves that they're homeless or explain that they've got a mental illness and that's why they're sleeping rough, I think is sort of discriminatory anyway because people, a lot of homeless people don't want to have, want to be left alone. They don't want to have to explain themselves to people in authority. And so I feel that that bylaw should have just been scrapped altogether. So there's still some things on the books that we want to campaign against. Things are modified and some of the worst elements have been deleted. But we, and by we I mean the people who protested on Wednesday night, want to see the rest of the undemocratic laws and the rest of the laws that could be used in a bad way towards homeless people simply repealed, deleted from Morland's local laws. So there is some discussion amongst people about possibility of a busk for free speech and the possibility of a stall day in the Coburg Mall challenging the ban on street stalls. So those are possible activities that we are likely to do in very soon. And so now this local law, after the vote on the draft on Wednesday night, will go out to public consultation. So there'll be an opportunity for people to submit make submissions in writing and also turn up to two public consultation meetings. So the public consultation period ends on the 13th of August and we really do need people to put in submissions to support the deletion of the anti-democratic clauses that were deleted on Wednesday night and to oppose the remaining anti-democratic clauses and then the whole thing goes to a vote in December for the final vote. So I think it will be good if we can get a good outcome because the problem is that a lot of councils have these laws on their books and we need to get rid of them because they're implemented in a generally fairly selective way by some councils, so a lot of people don't know they exist. 
and then other councils such as Maribyrnong, for example, where it seems to be just a blanket ban and they're quite ruthless in trying to enforce the ban on stalls. So I think there needs to be a bit of a campaign to try and get these laws off the books of local councils. Do you see these anti-democratic laws, in a sense, as an attack on the left? Oh, absolutely. I think it's an attack on the left and and also just on, you know, people getting together to exercise their free speech. I don't know the history of all of these local laws, but I know that Socialist Alliance members have been involved in free speech campaigns over the years in Brisbane, Newcastle, Wollongong, Sydney, Hobart, Adelaide, Perth and Darwin and possibly some other places as well. And then in Melbourne, we've been involved in a free speech campaign some years ago about the right to have a stall in a, one of these private shopping malls in the Brunswick area. So I think these laws exist all over the place and they're just totally anti-democratic. And I think we've got to try and fight to get them removed. And I suspect in most councils, when they come up to review the councillors just think, oh, well, they already existed, so, you know, we'll just tick them off again. And there was a certain element of that in the council where uh, other councillors and council staff were sort of trying to reassure us that, ah, oh, these laws, a lot of these laws already exist on our books, so we shouldn't be worried about them. Well, I think we should be worried about them. I come from Queensland originally, where Joe Bielke-Peterson's National Party government suddenly banned street marches in the late 70s to try and smash the anti-Uranium movement. And to do that, he didn't introduce new laws. They just simply dusted off old laws which required people to apply for a permit. And people would apply to the police for a permit and the police would just routinely reject the applications. So, you know, as long as you have any kind of permit system, it allows council to reject applications or take a week or weeks to approve applications, even besides the cost of applications. So I just don't think we want to give any kind of governmental bureaucracy the right to control our free speech in that way. And I know in Sydney where... There is a requirement, I'm not sure if it's council or state government, to apply to the police for the right to protest. You know, the police often deny those applications. And I think it is, we are quite lucky in Victoria that you don't have to apply for the right to have a street protest with the police like exists in Sydney. I think that's an important right although quite often the police try to give people the impression they do have to apply to have a street protest, um, you don't. And I think that freedom is something we've got to preserve and expand. And the other issue, of course, is homelessness. What's the state of public housing in the city of Moreland? Well, I think the state of public housing is very similar to what it is everywhere, and that is that, you know, over the years, both Liberal and Labor governments have been selling off public housing or transferring public housing to community housing associations, which are not the same as being in public housing. They're much more expensive to live in, higher rents, less security of tenure than people in public housing have. 
the Department of Housing also doesn't share information with the Moreland Council on exactly how many public housing dwellings exist in Moreland. And also, one of the housing estates, public housing estates in Moreland, uh, in West Brunswick, is scheduled for redevelopment along with around eight to ten other public housing estates across Melbourne. And I've reached the conclusion that these public housing renewal or public housing redevelopments is really not about public housing at all. They're all about handing land to private developers to develop a mix of public, of social and private housing. Most of the existing public housing tenants will not be allowed to return because their current housing is three-bedroom units for families and the new housing will be one- and two-bedroom units, so they'll be ineligible or won't be able to fit into them. So the whole community will be bussed up and if for those who do manage to return, it will be on the conditions of community housing rather than public housing, which is just, you know, 30% of your income in rent instead of 25% as it is in public housing and less security of tenure. Are the people being consulted at all in these units? Well, there are what they call consultation meetings, but it's not really being, it's not really consultation, it's really more informing people that they'll have to leave and uh, not giving people a choice. And my feeling is, if the government was genuine about the public housing renewal, they wouldn't be just bulldozing a whole estate. They'd um, maybe bulldoze the block that had structural defects or structural damage and just do one block at a time, which would mean the community would still be together rather than dispersing the entire estate, the tenants of the entire estate across Melbourne. These are real communities despite the criticism of public housing in the media and by ministers and, and some in the community. These are real communities and sure there might be some you know, social problems on some housing estates, but they're also real communities, and that's very obvious when you door knock on the estates. People don't want to leave. They don't want to leave their friends and neighbours. People look after each other on these estates. Some people have lived there many, many years, 20-plus years, so they, you know, they know each other, and, you know, it doesn't matter whether you live in private or public housing, there can always be you know, neighbour issues where maybe there could be, you know, someone could have bad neighbours. It's not, that's not exclusive to public housing. Private, you know, you can have that in private housing as well. But these are real communities and that does not come across in any of the public discourse about public housing estates. And the communities around the northern suburbs are under attack at the moment with the fire at the tip of Coolaroo and that brings you to making to thinking about what's happening with the new farm site in Faulkner. Has there been any developments on that? So the main development on the new farm site in Faulkner is that Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, is really downplaying residents' concerns about that site and you know, I personally feel that the council has been downplaying 
concerns about that site as well. So that the development on that site, which will penetrate the clay cap, which at the moment there's a clay cap over that site, which keeps the toxins in and prevents the toxins from escaping into the air. The development on that site, if it's allowed to go ahead by the council, will penetrate the clay cap, and that's what residents are most worried about. So, yeah, that's um, a, a very serious issue. Council will vote on this development application in late July or late August. Hopefully, council takes the right position, then it's likely to go to VCAT. And my feeling is that if this gets passed by VCAT, that the residents will engage in civil disobedience. Just back to the fire for a moment. Is that in the city of Moreland? No, that's in the city of Hume in Coolaroo, just over the border, really, from Moreland. It's sort of not far from the Broadmeadows Shopping Centre and Broadmeadows Railway Station. So the area that's particularly affected is Dallas. But, of course, this fire could have an impact in terms of air quality on... Broadmeadows Detention Centre for Refugees and Asylum Seekers on Camp Road, um, so that's a worry. And I think there have been some warnings in Faulkner about air quality. I live in Glenroy and I didn't notice any problems when I left home this morning, but, you know, possibly for people with breathing difficulties that's a problem. But I do have a friend who's in the evacuation zone or a couple of friends who are in the evacuation zone so I think they had resisted evacuation, which sometimes people do. People do want to stay in their homes. But, yeah, it's sort of, this is quite a serious issue. Well, we just hope it's managed much better than the, the Morwell fire Absolutely. a while ago. Absolutely. Yeah. Th- thanks, Sue. Okay. And it does look as though they've got it under control. That was Sue speaking to me last Friday about the fire at Coolaroo. It's 32 minutes past 5 o'clock, just coming up in a moment, Bougainville, a country we heard a lot about many years ago with the Panguna mine. Well, it's back on the books again. People fighting to stop the reopening of the mine. Bring down the covenant. The 7th Annual Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is on Saturday, August the 12th from 10am to 6pm. The Book Fair showcases more than 40 stalls and a program of workshops. It's a great opportunity to be introduced to new ideas, to challenge your thinking and to meet with like-minded folk. It's free and we also provide free childcare. At Brunswick Town Hall on Saturday, August the 12th from 10am till 6pm. Find out more at www.amelbournebookfair.org or find us on Facebook, the Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair. The Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is a 3CR supporter. The autonomous Bougainville government has made the decision to support the reopening of the Panguna mine with Bougainville Copper Limited as the preferred operator. But the decision has not been welcomed and there is stiff opposition by the general public and ex-combatants in the Long War, which claimed the lives of over 20,000 people. To understand the reasons for the widespread and deeply felt opposition, 
we need to look at the history of the Panguna mine on Bougainville, the first place in the world where Indigenous people closed down a mine that was destroying their land and livelihood and kept it closed. I'm speaking with Vicky Johns, a long-time activist for the people of Bougainville and a member of the Bougainville Freedom Movement. Vicky, the plunder of Bougainville can be traced back to the 18th and 19th centuries with the push by imperialists to colonise and control Indigenous people within the Asia-Pacific Rim and the island of Bougainville was not spared. Australian mining interests in Bougainville go back to 1929 and in 1969 a rich copper deposit was drilled and this began what has been termed the mother of all plunder on Bougainville. Can you follow on from there and and how the people's lives and their livelihood was devastated until the, the people broke into the mining company and stole the explosives? Mining started in 1972 in Bougainville with a mining company called CRA, which stood for Conzinc Rio Tinto Australia. In 1969, CRA told the administration, because Bougainville was part of the Australian administration at that time, that they wanted to take over at least 4,000 acres owned by numerous land groups on Bougainville and to pay them a derogatory $105 per acre plus $2 per felled coconut palm. So that was offered in compensation for those 4,000 acres. That's pretty lousy. The people on Bougainville did not want mining in the first place, had put signs up saying, um, keep out, in their own language, which I've forgotten what the word was now, but so keep out signs were put up, basically, you know, trespassing not allowed. And the administration and the mining company could see that, you know, there was a lot of opposition at that time. So on the 1st of August 1969, 75 riot police were flown in from Port Moresby so the mining company could take possession of the land. There were massive protests, peaceful protests, and the women actually led the protests as the women are basically known as the landholders. They're a matrilineal society. So the women actually led the resistance way back then in 1969. Unfortunately, they were compounded, bashed and beaten, and basically the mining company won and got the rights to mine all that land. So the Panguna mine, as it's well known today, was mined out, causing lots of um, environmental devastation. And over those years, from 1969, well, actually 1972, the first copper concentrate and gold was exported out of Bougainville. Can you just describe the size of the mine and where it is? I don't really have those figures in front of me, but it's a massive mine. It's, uh, I forget how many kilometres wide it is and how, how much, I think it's about a kilometre deep. But basically it was a mountain that has disappeared. They've taken out a whole mountain and now there is this massive man-made crater, the biggest crater in the southern hemisphere. And the environmental impacts of that? The environmental impacts were shocking. There were no environmental laws. 
firstly, the bulldozers came in, feared the jungle, knocked down coconut trees, knocked down people's villages. Then the digging started and the mine in its operation, the tailings, which are, you know, acid-like tailings, poisonous, toxic tailings, were being discharged straight into the river, both the Jabba River and the Karawong River. So no environmental laws. Those rivers are highly polluted and the, the rivers were, were used for their drinking. The people of Bougainville were using their rivers for their clean water, for drinking, etc. So they, they can't be used anymore. They're highly, highly polluted. And how many people were cleared off the land to allow this mine to go ahead? Again, I don't have the stats on that, but there were many areas. Uh, there was the Roravana people, there was people around Kieta, because the mine, you know, it, it, it was a mine site is at Panguna, but it, it, the mine has affected all the way down the rivers to the coast. So many people have been affected by, you know, the poison tailings in, this, in the um, operations of the mining company. And what happened to the people who were forced off their land? I know that the people at uh, Moroni, they were rehoused by the mining company, but their houses were right on the edge of the mine pit. So they were suffering the, the dust from the, you know, trucks and the, uh, you know, polluted air and, yeah, just horrendous. The noise, asthma, respiratory problems, all sorts of things. I know that the uh, Moroni people were actually relocated by the mining company, but in a horrible position. And until that mine was established, people lived a life of subsistence? Correct. So the land is um, considered their life, highly respected and regarded, and it's passed on from generation to generation. So, uh, um, yes, subsistence farming, also coconuts, cocoa to make chocolate, yes. And how long... After the mine was begun, did the demonstrations begin again? I know that there was opposition by a student organisation and it was supported by hundreds of people in Bougainville to again try and stop the bulldozers, CRA bulldozers. And again, it, it was like their cries were basically went to deaf ears. So the cry at that point too was like for more compensation and, you know, the environmental devastation that had been happening and also a cry for independence. But anyway, again, that was all ignored or just fell on deaf ears. And then by 1988, the people had just had enough. The fish were dying. It, it was horrendous for the people living around the mine site and down the, whole, and down the rivers to the sea that they tried peacefully to negotiate with the mining company, CRA, and the Papua New Guinea government for better terms and more effective environmental control. And again, they just weren't heard, they were ignored, and um, it just got to that point where they tried, you know, the people of Bougainville tried these actions, but they were, you know, they just tried to the nth degree but the attitude of the CRA mining company just, just didn't want to know them. So it just got to the point that the people on Bougainville decided to shut down the copper mine at Panguna. And when was that? That happened in November 1988 when the landowners 
stole dynamite from the mine and blew up the electric pylons, which supplied electricity to the mine. So it actually stopped the mine from operating. It ceased operations. So that was 1988. Then the Papua New Guinea government responded by sending in its defence force to Bougainville, therefore declaring an all-out war with the people on the island. The mine was actually closed by the company. Their closing date, they say, is March 1989 because they realised they could not open it, so they, you know, that's when they said they publicly declared it was closed in March 1989. And then a war ensued between um, the Papua New Guinea Defence Forces and the Bougainville land, land owners and the Bougainville Revolutionary Army. A bit of a David and Goliath? Very much so. Very much so. They suffered tremendous loss. It is estimated that 20,000 people died during that war. Yeah, it's terribly sad. And there was a blockade on the island of Bougainville. No one could enter by uh, the sea, because there was a sea blockade, a land blockade and um, a military blockade. So no one was allowed in, basically, and nobody out. It took brave people to actually go through that military blockade to get to Bougainville, to interview those who had survived the war, to get affidavits, etc., to find out exactly what was going on. Australia was involved. Australia also supplied helicopters that were kitted out with machine guns to strafe the villages of Bougainville and terrorise everybody there, including women and children. It was like another Vietnam. Can you talk about those who broke the blockade? Yes. My dear and late friend, Moses Habini, actually crossed the blockade. That was something that never really came out in the media. But one particular lady from Australia, a barrister named Rosemary Gillespie, actually managed to cross the blockade and get some, you know, the affidavit signed and actually help to expose what was happening on Bougainville. And what actually was happening that she managed to find out about? We were aware, but we had to have it that information as evidence. She was aware of what the mining company, who was supporting the mining company, hence Papua New Guinea, the government, Australia, and, of course, the mining company itself. So she managed to, to get affidavits which exposed how the Australian helicopters were being used as gunships and the mortar bombs that were being dropped on the people and how basically our dollar, our tax dollars as Australians, was being used to kill the people of Bougainville. And also that blockade was responsible for many of those deaths, wasn't it? Yes, that's right. There's an estimated 20,000 people had died during that time that the war started from 1988 until the ceasefire and the peace talks in 1997. There were a lot of human rights abuses, tortures, deaths. Yes, terrible, absolutely terrible. That's, this has all also been um, documented, yes, in there's two lists called Marilyn's Lists. Marilyn Havini has documented uh, lots of the um, atrocities that happened in the two books. Yes, so we have hard evidence, yes. Were health centres attacked as well to stop the people getting... Supporting yes, that no way. Medicines. There were no medicines coming in. 
people were totally deprived and the ones who were injured on Bougainville, they had to escape by a boat to get to the Solomon Islands, the closest point being Gizo, where there was a hospital. So some managed to make it, many didn't. So if they were injured on Bougainville, they, some, as I said, were fortunate to get help at Gizo in the Solomon Islands. It was miraculous that people did survive. And what brought that blockade to an end? It came to an end in 1997 when we were tipped off that mercenaries were being hired by the Papua New Guinea government. Mercenaries are hired killers that that were being brought over from South Africa. And at the time, Sandline Sandline Mercenaries was the name of this mob. What ended up happening, cutting a long story short, the, the Papua New Guinea general of the Defence Forces, Jerry Singerock, actually intervened and stopped the mercenaries from going, as well as the people of Papua New Guinea. It was um, huge dissent against these hired killers going to Bougainville, and uh, they mobilised and actually stopped the mercenaries from going. So that actually was the, the crunch to stop the war on Bougainville. And there are also many links between the people of Bougainville and the people of PNG. Oh, yes, yes. Geographically, socially, ethically, culturally, and even linguistically, they are part of the Solomon Islands, not Papua New Guinea. But there were family ties, PNG and Bougainville, and that helped uh, to the resistance? There were ties. People had, yes, other family members in Papua New Guinea. Yes, that's true. And how important or disruptive to the people of Bougainville was the Australian involvement in this war? It was extremely destructive in the sense that it was our taxes that were doing this by, you know, supplying the Papua New Guinea Defence Forces with, you know, guns, bombs, helicopters, boats. That's all Australian taxpayer dollars going to support this war on Bougainville because of an Australian mining company. Once the PNG soldiers left, how did the people get on with their lives? Well, a very war-torn country. Yeah, the ceasefire in 1997 and the peace talks that happened thereafter created a peace deal and saw, in 2001, Bougainville won autonomy within Papua New Guinea. They were on their own, but still ruled by Papua New Guinea. So any funding or aid came via Papua New Guinea, and it still does today. And how did the people rebuild their lives? Basically going back to square one, you know, it's like starting again, building their shops, building post offices, getting telecommunications happening, opening banks. It was massive, absolutely massive after the war. You know, some aid was kindly given, you know, to help maybe do the roads as well. But again, the people have basically sustained themselves with their farming. And CRA was not trying to get back that mine back again? Well, CRA merged. I I should have said that earlier. CRA, which is Consinc Rio Australia, merged with Rio Tinto Zinc, which was an a UK, British mining company, merged together in 1995 to become Rio Tinto Mining Company. Did they keep quiet about not trying to reopen the mine? 
in the beginning, yes, it was definitely the, they're not coming back. They're definitely not welcome. 20,000 people dead, no way they want to ever see that mining, mining company return again. But as time's gone on, it seems that the current president of Bougainville, John Momus, he sees it that the only way to get financial on Bougainville, if they become independent, is to, op- to reopen the mine. Now, there is a lot of opposition to that, whilst the current government is trying to say that oh, there's lots of people want the mine open. That's not the case. From what I've discovered, that's quite the opposite. So the President Momus is actually downplaying the opposition to the mine. What was Momus's role during the war? Now he was a member of parliament in PNG, he was also a priest, a father in the Catholic Church. Other than that, I, don't, I really don't know much about his history. There's opposition to the mine being opened. The people in Bogor do not want the mining company to come back. So the, the mining company itself is called Bougainville Copper Limited. They don't want them to come back. They've had enough. They've, had, they've um, you know, had 20,000 people are dead. The environment's devastated. The rivers are still, you know, trying to rehabilitate. It's, you know, they don't want to have another war and uh, they do not want Bougainville Copper Limited back. So the only ones that are really re- pushing the mine to be reopened is the current government because they're saying that, that they need the money, you know, if they become independent. There's a referendum in June 2019. But the thing is, the, the mine, it's going to cost billions to clean up the mine, the mess, Billions of dollars started up. It's been estimated at least 10 years until any profits are made if the mine reopens. But on saying all that, the mining company has just walked away, saying that they're they're not taking any responsibility and they felt that they were compliant with the law at the time, so are not doing anything about it, doing anything about the environmental devastation. Oh, it's 20 years since the mine was closed. Have the rivers recovered? Have the surrounding areas recovered? Apparently in certain spots they have recovered, but there's still a lot of um, devastation to be cleaned up. The poisonous tailings, yeah, there's still a lot of of work to be done to um, clean it up properly. Talk about the women. The women were a big focus for the, the, the demonstrations against the mine when the blockade was on. What is the role of women now? The women are still the same. There was a massive protest. I think there were 300 women. I think that was back in this year in June. And they made a... The the stand was, and the banners read, no BCL, which Bougainville Copper Limited, no mining. So... The government's trying to push and corrupt other landowners to sign, you know, an agreement to say that the mining company can come back, whereas the real landowners, where the minerals are, the the copper and the gold, are saying no. No mining, no BCL. Well, the interim government is saying, well, we have to have the mine open for development. What is the state of the economy in Bougainville now? Why do they need that development of the mine? Well, that's the question that the Bougainville people are asking. What's the hurry? What's the hurry to reopen the mine? You know, there are other, there are better things that you could be doing for for the people, you know, like getting the economy off the ground in other ways, like 
coconuts or cocoa or agriculture, fishing, tourism. There are other avenues, but the government seems to be hell-bent on focusing on that mining company, Bougainville Copper Limited, going back to Bougainville. Are there other mining ventures in Bougainville or was that the only one? That was the only one, but uh, apparently there are other areas in Bougainville that they would like to mine. But there's nothing as huge as this. I did read that it's three times the size of Octetti in PNG. Yes, it was, it's a massive, it's the biggest man-made environmental disaster in the Southern Hemisphere. And what's the Australian role in recent years? Have they kept out of it or are they sort of there in the background? I think they're there in the background. I know we send Australia, you know, Aid funds and things to projects in Bougainville, but apparently the money doesn't go straight to Bougainville. It goes via Papua New Guinea. So whoever is in charge of dispersing those funds to Bougainville is not doing so. So they're stifling Bougainville on that sense. So financially they're being stifled that way. Have you been there in recent years, Vicky? No, not recently. I did go there, I think it was 2002 was my last trip, and I went to a reconciliation ceremony there. I was invited to go, and which was very sad and very moving, and also got to meet a lot of the wonderful people that I'd heard so much about. Yeah, it was a very beautiful trip. Because it was a divide and rule there, wasn't it? Oh, it was terrible what happened, how the people were divided. And the same thing is happening now, you know. It's just, again, the pro-mining lobby versus the no-mining lobby. How long before we have a decision on whether this mine will go ahead? Do we have to wait till the referendum or not? If there was to be mining, that's what people are saying. If there was to be mining, why not wait until we get our independence on Bougainville and then talk about mining? But until then... No mining, no BCL. But is there likely to be a, a push by the mining company to make sure that they don't get their referendum up? There could be that push. I understand already that the Prime Minister of Papua New Guinea is against independence. I haven't actually spoken to any Australian politicians generally to find out their point of view, but, you know, but, yeah, the, the, basically the call's coming from... Um, Papua New Guinea. They don't want to let go. What is the role now of someone like Marilyn Havini, who's now living in the the area of that mine? Um, Marilyn has got family duties and family ties in Bougainville, so that's where her focus is at the moment. I know that she's currently working in a voluntary situation, focusing on women's rights. Okay, Vicky, thanks for that. You're welcome. And that was Vicky Johns from the Bougainville Freedom Movement. And Vicky was heavily involved in the activism with the people of Bougainville back in the days before the mine closed and after the mine closed. And I made an error before I said it's 20 years since the mine closed. It's nearly 30 years since the, the people of Bougainville closed that mine. That's all for me for today. I'll be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. Stay tuned in just... Two minutes time for Done by Law. Bye for now.